Hey everybody, this is Jack. And this is Nick. And this is Build Phase. So you work in ThoughtBot's London office, and you worked there before it was ThoughtBot, right? I did, yes. I, I started a few months before we became ThoughtBot. I had the interesting experience of sitting down on my first day and then having, having Laurie, the development director now of the London office, go, mm-hmm. oh yeah, we're becoming ThoughtBot, <laughs> which was one of the most interesting ways perhaps you could have started the first sure. day and your first hour on a job that you, you don't <laughs> quite know what it's going to be like. But I, I assume you'd, you were familiar with ThoughtBot before that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Presumably. I'd previously run a, a startup that had done a mix of Rails and iOS stuff. And we'd use loads of ThoughtBot things, Factory sure. Girl, for example. Yeah, that's cool. So how are, how are things going over there? I haven't really been in touch with you in a, in a while and or with anybody in that office much. Is everything rolling along nicely? Yeah, things are going well at the moment. We've got some interesting Good. projects. We continue to be kind of quiet, but we keep ourselves busy. Quiet relative to the rest of ThoughtBot, is that what you mean? Or Yes. Less chatter in Slack? Yes, apart from perhaps <laughs> myself. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was one of the things that I know that being at ThoughtBot here in Stockholm, it was nice when London came aboard because suddenly we had more people who were awake and online during the day with us. Even though you still were, you guys were all quieter than Stockholm, even though you were way yeah. more than us. But it was good to have you around. Cool. So, uh, you have any interesting projects you're, you've been working on lately? Or any interesting technologies you've been touching? I've just finished working on a combination iOS and Rails project that was difficult. It's definitely a case of someone misunderstanding the concept of what an MVP is, which mm. is one of my, my big bugbears, really. People build too much pretty consistently and they'll often build stuff badly and that makes for a, an interesting client project so you feel like the misunderstanding was was with the client or with some previous developers they had had or the yeah, mix? sometimes a mix i think technology is difficult and it's incredibly difficult to be starting something when you're not a programmer yourself right and you're in a pretty bad position when you start that way. Definitely makes you feel for the people who are who are trying to do that. I, I often come across horror stories of people who work with some distant CTO who either disappears one morning and never comes back and right. they end up with nothing which is useful <laughs> at all. And that's not great. And I think it's quite easy for developers to say yes all the time and not go, oh, maybe we shouldn't do this. Maybe there's a simpler way to build what you're doing, which requires a lot less effort. Yeah, I think that is really important is to to be able to, as a developer or designer, to be able to push back against the client, not to tell the client that they are wrong exactly. Or, well, yeah, to, to tell them that, to be able to tell them that they're wrong, like not that they're entirely wrong, but that they need to sort of think about the, the scope of what they're doing and think about how to focus on what's important and not get bogged down in either unnecessary detail or get bogged down in trying to do too much all at once. Yeah, I, I think founders are an interesting group of people. They have massive, not massive, they have wide aims for what they're they're trying to do and a lot of enthusiasm and it's infectious. And sometimes we, to stretch this analogy too far, we can become infected by that enthusiasm. We want to build all the things. And that's something I see pretty consistently. Everyone wants to build as much as possible in a short period of time. And that often doesn't go very well. 
Yeah, I think there's a there's a notion that many people starting companies have of saying that okay, they have a vision of what they think the complete product is going to be, and they don't want to release anything less than that. Like they want to say, okay, we want to work until this thing is this thing that I have in my mind has crystallized in actual application, and then we'll release it in the world, and then the gods will smile upon us, and Al will be wealthy. <laughs> and, yes. And, yes, and the absolutely. problem is that the, like they don't get to test their assumptions. They don't get to find out along the way if this is the right thing they're doing. It's sort of, I feel like there ought to be some boot camp for people starting this sort of tech companies where they actually learn about iterative software development and the approach that we take and why it's useful. That it's not just like, we're not doing it because we we like it because we think this is a more fun way to develop software. We do it because it makes sense yes. for a lot of reasons. And I think that just like you are saying, I've encountered lots of, lots of people who don't seem to get this because they haven't done it before. You know, people who are, they're starting their first company or one of their first companies and they have this grand idea and they've got maybe, maybe some funding and they have, you know, it probably is, it might be a really great idea and they can be very impatient and unwilling to take baby steps to find their way forward and find how, you know, how do we actually build what we're trying to build and make sure that it's the right thing and the useful thing. Does that correspond with what you've seen as well? Yeah, for sure. It's definitely a case of too much and yeah. too much of the, the future goal and not the present reality. There's always the adage of as soon as you put an application in front of a bunch of users, they're going to use it in a completely different way to which you imagined anyway. Right. And it's very difficult to point that out, that that's, that's what's going to happen. Hmm. You, you mentioned this, and it does, it does come up again and again that people have this experience and I think from our standpoint, it tends to be that, you know, okay, here we go. We have this, we have this customer, this person, this company, whatever it is, who has what to us seem like unrealistic expectations that, you know, we know they can't have all of this done in the time they want or with the budget they have. We want to try and guide them. And it can be very hard because like you said, it can, it can also be somewhat infectious if someone is, is super, you know, super gung-ho, super excited about what they're building it's easy to get sucked along with that, you know, go along for the ride and say, yeah, sure. We've got an awesome team here. I bet we can do this. Why not? And each, each thing you commit to might have, you know, a thousand more details that you didn't think about when you committed to it. And suddenly a month in, you're like, oh, wow. Okay. Now I see <laughs> we've, you know, we've only scratched the surface of this and we're supposed to be done in, in two months from now. And just, it's, it's tricky. It is definitely suffered from the curse of continuing week by week by week by week. And we extend week by week by week. And we keep going, okay, we'll do a few more things. We'll fix a few more bugs or we'll implement more features and we'll keep going and going and going. And the time to do it is when it's super uncomfortable to be releasing that into the world, but with a product that works well and right. does solve that core problem. So you're saying you recently finished such a project that was a bit tricky? Yes, I'm now on something different, and I've been building a hypermedia API, which is the first time I've done this. It's super interesting to be working on something which tests itself, which is the approach I've been taking. So you need to explain to maybe listeners, and for sure me, what you mean by developing a hypermedia API. You're right. So <laughs> if we think of the concept of, of REST, 
RESTful APIs. So we're following approximately the HTTP standard, get, post, put, patch, etc. all of whom fit certain actions. So get gets you data, put updates some data in place, post creates new data. Where hypermedia comes in is we start talking about links. Hmm. Links are the thing that make the web work the way it does. So the hypermedia in this is the same as a web page. So one okay. page links to another page and another page links to another page. And the goal that you're trying to do with building a hypermedia API is to have an application that works exactly the same way as a web page does. You go to the home page or in this case, the root of the API, mm. and then you know where else you can get within that. So imagining a hypothetical company's website has an about page and has a, some listing about their products, and we can go to the root of our API, and we can find where the about page is, and we can find where the product page is, and we can find each of the individual products from those, and we can then wander our way around the API, and we don't need to know anything about the, the endpoints that are there. Because right. the API tells us, it describes itself. Okay, so is this, because I remember reading Roy Fielding wrote about REST and this idea of, that he was kind of saying at some point, well, a lot of people are missing the point. The point is that she will fetch a document that describes what more can be done relative to that in the form of, I think he was talking about like, you would put relative links in the head section so that you would know that, okay, this is an HTML page. And here we, we declare some actions that can lead you to other other things you can fetch or things you can edit, you know, that you can post or put or whatever. Is that what we're looking at here? Absolutely. That's definitely it. That's cool because we were. I was actually just talking about this with some people at the client that I'm on because they were talking about various... Like I actually started... I, I started complaining because they someone pointed me at the documentation for a third-party web service that, the, that this client is using that was allegedly a rest web service where everything i forget i think everything was a post that was it there were no wow. gets everything was a post and yeah and <laughs> and then so like if, if you're actually getting something you would, you would be posting something to a url you know some resource slash identifier slash get like there would be a get in the URL instead of that you were changing something. So it's, and so I started complaining about this and someone, we started talking about this whole thing, like what you're talking about. And I mentioned this, that, you know, the ideal would be if you had things that were sort of documents that had contained metadata about what related actions could be performed on them, you could make a generic, sort of a generic application that could fetch such a thing and have a default mechanism for rendering something. So say if, if the content of the page is, is mostly textual, it could just show text. If there's something that it seems to be structured in some way, it could form it in a, you know, a table. And if it is a particular kind of resource that the application knows about and is built for, they can have a particular view for that. So you could have an application that, okay, we're dealing with banking and we've got transactions and users and accounts and we know how to render those things but if later at some point the back end adds some other new types of data that our application doesn't have specific views for it can actually still render them in a very in at least a simplistic way let a user view it in some sense just the same way you can add stuff to a web page and a human can look at it even if they've never seen it before yeah that's kind of exactly what we're trying to aim for there's some practical concerns to that 
something I've seen a lot in Swift is because of the type safety, we can't just add more elements or we can't adjust existing elements to be a bit more correct, but we can add more and they'll just get ignored. And that, that's, that's perfectly fine. But adjusting is, is a problem there. Mm. So the back end is Rails and front end is, front end is iOS, essentially? Is that? No, not in this project. No, so okay. I end up doing a mix of Ruby stuff and also a iOS stuff. My previous project was both, which was mm. interesting. I, I had the fun experience of command tabbing between Xcode and, and Vim sure. constantly through the same day, which is always interesting. Now I'm just doing a Ruby thing, okay, which is quite nice in some respects. Less to keep in keep in my mind at least, and that helps. Yeah, a little more, a little more focus. Yeah, but the front end is iOS that someone else is building, or is it a different kind of front end? It's a another application. So I'm basically building a service that wraps a data dump that we get from an FTP bucket, which is interesting okay. hmm. because it turns out that FTP is still used in the real world. Yeah, <laughs> amazing. Yeah, a lot. Yeah, I have a friend who. He doesn't anymore, but he worked for a long time for a company that dealt in fuel prices in the U.S., basically for trucking, for transportation companies, so they could plot out their journeys for their drivers driving across the country, where is the best place to refuel. Yep. And, you know, he was describing huge swaths of what they used to do. And this, this was a while ago, but I wouldn't be surprised it was still the same. Huge amounts of what they would do was, was FTP-based. Like the things that I would think of as, okay, we want to have some sort of triggers service that is triggered by doing something. It's like, no, 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 there was, it was FTP, like just like, you know, generating some data in some sort of format and FTPing it somewhere. And then a batch job somewhere else picks that up and does something with it. It's pretty amazing. It makes me realize that there must be so many systems that exist in this same way. How else it's, Lots of legacy things which can't talk to each other for various right. various interesting reasons <laughs> have now a, a solution to this, which is dumping the data from some legacy database and then wrapping it in some other service. So then, then another application can actually read that data back in again. And then later spit it back out in, and FTP it somewhere else. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> And at some point, if the system you're building right now is very successful, in 20 years, someone will look at this and say, have you seen this thing? This Why do we have to use this crazy old thing? And not only is this thing crazy and old, behind it all, it's fetching something with FTP. Like, well, <laughs> sometimes it's like we're just, we're like building on like more, like more nodes in this network of weird things that, that exists out there in, in the world. And you never know which of these things are going to sparkle and then fade away and which things are going to become permanent because you know because somebody's million dollar a day business depends on this thing that somebody wrote somewhere and that you know and can almost never be changed yeah and when do we know whether or not we did the right thing did we pick the right technology did we pick the right <laughs> approach we don't know we only yeah, gonna know, know 20 years time where, when we realize that yes we we did that badly and that was not a good idea <laughs> <laughs> yep <laughs> programming eh isn't it great fun that's what we do i've been having a good time lately i'm working on a client which has it's an ios app it's been around for a few years and they started off in objective c and building it with reactive cocoa which is great yep. and so now 
more and more of the app is in Swift and therefore also reactive Swift. And it's good. Like the team is really good at sort of keeping on top of, you know, being close to the latest versions of, of the whole reactive Swift set of things now, which is actually that. So now there's reactive Swift. There's the Swift part. Reactive objective C is the objective C part. Reactive Cocoa is just sort of the linkages to, to UI kit and app kit on the Mac, I guess. And yep. then there's, I think it's something called, I think it's the reactive, reactive bridge, reactive objective C bridge. I forget the sort of, kind of links together so you can kind of make a signal in one and then transfer it into the other kind of signal oh that's nice so so in in the old what used to be called reactive coco was now reactive objective c everything starts with with the rack prefix you can create a rack signal yes whereas in reactive swift it's all the prefixes are gone and it's a different set of classes that are implemented in swift instead but you can actually take a rack signal and convert it to just a, a signal in the swift version so this application has many layers because it's been built over the span of many years or say, you know, three years, maybe three, four years, not a super long time, but a while mm-hmm. and a number of developers. So it's interesting, like every, almost every new feature we're going to add ends up being a bit of an archaeological exploration because we have to figure out, okay, so the view controller that controls this section, okay, this part is in Swift. Oh, but it's dealing with some of its table view cells are objective C and they've got a view model that is using, <laughs> that is using objective C reactive cocoa instead of, you know, so it's sort of, it's a lot of digging and twiddling, but it's, it's pretty fun. Huh. Interesting. That's a lot of things to keep in your mind in one, at one go. <laughs> right. And it's the thing where not only is there the choice when you're implementing something to say, okay, I can either choose, say I've got a, I've got a label and labels being populated with some data from some, model object that I have. Yep. Beyond just the choice of, okay, should this string value be mediated through a view model instead of the view controller talking to a model directly, but also should that view model be updating itself through a signal from some other data source? And also should that signal be a rack signal from the Objective-C side yeah. or a signal from the Swift side. It all depends on sort of where it's coming from. And like we, we're trying as we go to move everything towards the Swift way of doing things. But sometimes there are things that, okay, we this whole big piece is all Objective-C and it doesn't make sense to try and rewrite this or refactor a huge chunk of this into Swift right now. Today, I just have, you know, I've got to add one little thing. And so it ends up, we end up kind of tacking stuff into lower levels that is the Objective-C stuff that we're trying not to deal with, but we have to, but it's, it's fun. So that's what I've been doing for a while. And it's, this is for me, definitely the biggest reactive Cocoa, reactive Swift project that I've been involved in. I've kind of been following reactive Cocoa for years, actually. I think I, I know I gave a talk about it at Cocoa Heads meeting in Stockholm, and I think that was like in 2000. 12 or something like a long time ago like I, I played with it a little bit and i was like wow this is really cool and i've used it sparingly in apps since then now and then like i, I kind of i've never built any entire apps around reactive swift react proco i kind of sprinkled it in in certain places where it seemed to fit and be helpful what are those scenarios where do you feel like it fits in really well one of the places that i found it especially good for and this is kind of before we had swift even I've always liked KVO, at least I, I mean, I'm not that fond of the API in a sense, but the functionality that we can say, okay, any, 
any object, any property that is visible on some object, we can get observations when it changes. It's a great way to sort of shuffle data around different parts of your application without having to, you don't have to purposely send a notification saying, I'm changing this thing. Anybody can just observe things. Yep. But KVO, the API is a little bit funky to use. And it's not always clear. Like you don't want to have in an iOS app view controllers that know about each other, right? right? So the typical thing is you might have some global object that ends up being kind of a dumping ground for stuff. And that, that's that's pretty common. You know, it used to be that you'd uh, often it would be the app delegate, right? It would end up being this terrible dumping ground. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Which I mean, I'm sure, and I'm sure, I'm sure some people still do. But what I ended up doing in a, in a few applications was where I found a need for this. What I would do is I would use a global object of some kind as kind of a model of the application's current state. I remember there's an application that had kind of this hamburger menu that would pop in from the left, right? And the state, what that menu would show would be different depending on what main view you were currently looking at. So you might have up one of two, three, four different main views. And when that hamburger menu swipes in, it's not going to be the same content every time. It's going to be some different stuff based on what you're currently looking at, what your selection is. And so rather than having that menu, like, observe some like try and keep track of okay what is what view controller am i looking at right now when i'm coming in instead as the user navigated through the application i had what essentially amounted to sort of sort of an enum that had a value that was maintained by this central object so whenever one of these view controllers that was indicative of the application's current gui state came to the forefront it would set this property and say okay now you're looking at the main content page or the user is, or, you know, say now the user is looking at the settings page or the user is looking at whatever it was. And it would do that by just setting a property on this global object. It was a singleton of some kind. Yep. And then the menu could observe that same property. So that as soon as anybody, as soon as the user navigated somewhere, that menu would immediately get a notification without anyone. There was no notification sent. It was just an observation through KVO. And that, that's all fine, except that KVO is just kind of ugly to use in a lot of ways. And so just by a little tweak of wrapping that in Reactive Cocoa, it became quite easy to observe the state of the application. And so and the, I think there were a couple more things I did in one app. So the only really use of Reactive Cocoa was kind of just that. Like I had this global object that was kind of the current application view state that any view could sort of poke and say, okay, I'm now doing this. And meaning the user is now looking at this and anybody who needed to know could observe that. And so you could have that menu could change or like the title bar could change. So you could, so that's another thing. you could have like a title bar that was kind of independent of the content view. So when the content view was changed, we didn't have to say, okay, now I, I know that when this content view changes, I have to go and tweak the, the title bar also. Rather, it was, a, it was a separate entity of its own that would just observe the application state and say, oh, now it's this. So I'll change this, enable this button or hide this thing or whatever. So that sort of thing I found React for Cocoa pretty useful for. So I've, I've done a few things like that. And I've done some other reactive things. I've done some, did some C-sharp reactive stuff not that long ago. But the project I'm on now is the first time that I've actually worked on a large scale iOS application that's really built around this heavily. And I like it. And I'm still sometimes quite befuddled by it like it's hard to, <laughs> sometimes it's hard to hard to figure out 
what I want to do. Or I know what I want to do, but I have to, it's hard to figure out exactly how to do it always because there's so much indirection. Right. Things yeah, become less, that. it's, you know, it's not imperative programming. It's not do this, then this, then this. It's more, okay, I'm setting up this thing and then inside of there is a block that's going to be called when the thing is done. It can make debugging a bit tricky and it can just make writing the code a bit tricky because everything you're writing is always stuff that's waiting for something else to happen sometime. <laughs> yeah. How do you find that for testing? Is is that a lot of complexity or is that not that bad because you find that each of these components are isolated? It's actually not that bad. So a lot of the a lot of the reactive cocoa and swift stuff that we have going on there is in the view model layer. So we're able to test the view models using Inspector and these other things. Yep. And the Swift, what's it, what, quick, yes. nimble. So we have, so that's again, we have, we have kind of all of these things. We're hitting all of these <laughs> buttons. So we're able to use those quite a bit to, to test the view model layer. And all of these have functionality for, for sort of kicking something off. And then the thing you're expecting to happen is a keyword to say, you know, wait, or, you know, there's like a way you can sort of say, okay, I don't expect this value to be what I'm looking for right now, but within a certain timeout. So it can start something and the application can run a little bit to let all these things sort of trickle down. So the value you're trying to poke in somewhere actually produces a result somewhere. Right. I see. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's not too bad. The application is large enough that it's, I found it at first a bit overwhelming when I started diving into it and trying to figure things out because the people who have been working there for a while, you know, they're used to it, especially one of the main developers who's been there for a few years working on this almost the whole time. It's the kind of thing that as you're, if you're there from the beginning and building it up, it all kind of makes sense. And you know, like any big system, you know, all oh, right, that thing is like that because Joe built that part three years ago. And then we tied it into that and sort of like, you know, it becomes a sort of <laughs> not monstrosity, but a thing that is, that is complex because it is complex and has many layers and has history and has time. So like, I guess like any large project, but I think it'd be the fact that there's all the reactive stuff made it for me a bit trickier to dive into and start to feel productive on but it's going pretty well now hmm, that's super interesting have you done any any reactive cocoa stuff at all i've not no I, i've not come across it well i have come across okay. it right i've not used it is what i mean right eventually hopefully i i, I might everything i've done with ios over the last few years I've, I've done quite a lot less of it than i would like and so it's usually been pretty vanilla ios work Sure. And simple. And that's that's quite nice. It's nice to to jump back into it again. This recent project that I, that I was on was the, the first one when I'd worked with Swift 3. I'd done a very early Swift project. It was like effectively the second project that I'd done in Swift. Okay. That's such a big gap between, between things. It yeah. is really <laughs> fascinating to come back to something which has changed so much and evolved in in, in such a such a big way. Right. And to see that there are now such nicer patterns for doing the same thing that I would have done before. Right. So is because the earlier project that you're talking about, that's the one you were working on with Kale a year ago or so, Yeah, that's right? it, yeah. Right. Yeah, so yeah, I'm just thinking about how much has changed since then. It is like you're saying, it's, there's so much that happens. And the thing that I've noticed especially is that I think about something like, like Argo, which, you know, was created at ThoughtBot and... The project I'm on right now, by the way, is using Argo. It's still very much a valid thing, right? It's out there in the world. And yet so much of what Argo was built to take care of for you, like Swift has kind of evolved to take care of a lot of those things. Like one of the main things back in the early day was the sort of 
pyramid of doom where you would have these sort of stacked or nested if lets to check to see that all your values yeah. are set, right? And so it took care of that eventually. But but Argo took care of that years ago before it was before Swift had a good way of doing it. Right. Absolutely. It's interesting how, how many things are that, that Swift is actually is it really evolving to cover a lot of use cases. You know, it's not I do not believe that it is evolving intentionally to eliminate Argo. But I believe that, you know, <laughs> it's it's evolving to to do things that people need to do. Have you seen there was maybe a month ago there was some kind of proposal sent around about serialization? Have you seen this? I've not seen this, no. Okay, I can talk about it a little bit. I'll find a link to post in the show notes. It was a really interesting idea for serialization for Swift that reminded me a bit of things like NS archiving right? that has been around in Cocoa forever. But the idea being that it was sort of extensible and you could kind of define your own underlying archive formats and that sort of thing. So, So you could take any sort of object that implemented the right protocols could be archived into some general intermediate format in a way, just in memory. And then you could have your own underlying definition of what that, how that format is actually saved to disk. So it could be JSON, but it could be XML or it could right. be CSV huh, or it could be, you know, piped into a web service that uploads it via FTP. <laughs> 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 Who knows? <laughs> everything is possible everything could be horrifyingly complicated <laughs> yeah so but it, it was interesting and it kind of addressed the fact that swift has or the swift community has a glut of options when it comes to serializing data when it comes to unpacking json and all these things yeah you know i think it would be good to have something that is kind of apple blessed in a way or at least swift team blessed something that could be integrated nicely and is yet open enough that anybody can sort of work with it and extend it. It's relatively easy to make your own classes and structs and enums and everything archivable and also define how you want that archiving to actually happen at the nuts and bolts level. So I will, yeah. I'll find a link. We'll, well, I'll attach it to the show notes. I don't, have, I don't even have a title. It was something like Serialization in Swift. I don't remember. It was pretty cool, though. Yeah, it does sound really interesting. And I don't know, I read it when it came out. I haven't looked to see this current status. I don't know if it's, you know, it's it's in the Swift Evolution system there. I don't know if it's on track, if it's still being discussed, if it's been dismissed out of hand, who knows. But I thought it was interesting. All right, well, hey, I wonder if we should wrap this up today. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. All right, you can find show notes for this episode at buildphase.fm slash 118, episode 118. You can reach us by email send it to hosts at buildphase.fm and you can find us on twitter at buildphase and of course we appreciate all of your comments and reviews on itunes or anywhere else you may find this podcast please go in and give us all the stars all right nick thanks jack thank you all right talk to you soon talk to you soon